Okay, let's go on to your next patient. This next patient is a 68-year-old African-American female. She found a palpable mass in her left breast in 1991. And the biopsy was an infiltrating lobular carcinoma, measured 1.2 centimeters. Estrogen receptor was positive, progesterone receptor negative, and she had negative nodes. She was initially managed with a mastectomy. She had adjuvant tamoxifen for five years and stopped in 1996. She actually came to my practice in 1991 while she was still on tamoxifen. After she finished tamoxifen, she did well for about 15 years. And then she came to see me in the spring of 2006 with severe skeletal pain, so much so that I actually admitted her to the hospital and started her on a morphine drip. That's how severe the pain was. And we imaged her, and she had multiple areas of abnormal bone. She did not have any visceral metastases. Her CA2729 was elevated. We biopsied the iliac crest, and she had metastatic carcinoma, estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative. I started her on letrozole and zoledronic acid, and she had an excellent response. She stayed on the letrozole for about 15 months, and then she had symptomatic progression in bone. Still no evidence of visceral disease. And my second-line hormonal therapy for her was fulvestrant. She got nine months of fulvestrant and then progressed in bone, and she was then switched to exemestane. She got eight months of results with exemestane, but then progressed in the right femur to the point where she needed surgical fixation for prophylaxis and got radiotherapy to the area. And at that point, I started her on estradiol. And she did have a little tumor flare with estradiol, but her tumor marker went down, and she tolerated it you know, pretty well. And she stayed on estradiol for 10 months. She came one time to the office in 2010, and she had some pain in her neck. We found that she had metastasis to the cervical spine, which was new. I talked to neurosurgery. They were not interested in doing anything about this, so we just treated this with radiotherapy. But at that point, I thought that she was hormone refractory. And so we decided to go ahead with chemotherapy, and at that time, I began her on nabpaclitaxel and bevacizumab. And after five cycles, I got a call from an eye doctor who said that she had developed a superficial punctate keratopathy. And she was going to be managed topically, but was there anything that I was doing that might have contributed to that? And I looked it up, and it, actually there was some information from Richard Terrio about keratopathy being associated with nabpaclitaxel. So I stopped the drug. Shortly thereafter, she developed liver metastases, and she has started on capecitabine, and she has continued the bevacizumab. And her major problem has been hand-foot syndrome and some mild proteinuria, but not nephrotic range. And her CT scan continues to show stable disease. 
Any hypertension or nosebleeds? None. And high, actually, I was just thinking about a lung cancer think tank we had last week, and your colleague, at least for the time being, not <laughs> yeah. for long, Mark Sosinski, was quoting you about NAB. Mark studied it in lung cancer, but maybe you can verbalize your own thoughts. He quoted sort of some skeptical thoughts from you. I don't know if that was correct or not. Well, I think NAB-paclitaxel is a unique drug, certainly you know, from logistics of giving patients chemo in the office, it's great to avoid cremafor. And the problem people get, especially with weekly therapy, where steroids can build up and other problems. You know, I think the CLGB study will answer the question of whether it is better than weekly paclitaxel, which is the question because it is a much more expensive drug. It has an interesting mechanism of action, and perhaps it is. So I'm totally open to it. Are you actually using it in your practice? I use it. I've mainly used it in people who've had reactions or have problems with paclitaxel. I haven't used it routinely as a replacement for paclitaxel. Right. And I guess the trial you're talking about, everybody gets Bev. Initially, it was going to compare ixabevalone, paclitaxel to NAB. And I've heard that the ix arm was dropped. Right. I think we were all surprised, but we got an email from the CLGB that the ixabepilone arm, which was also a weekly, three-week-on, one-week-off regimen of ixabepilone, was dropped from the study. So we have to interpret that as there was either undue toxicity, I haven't seen the data, or it was inferior in response rate. At least in the data I was privy to, I haven't seen that. What I was told verbally was that it looked like it was impossible, that it was going to be better. Right efficacy-wise, which I didn't realize that was actually the objective of the study. Alan, why did you decide to use NAB and HER? How do you go about deciding when to use NAB? And the same question in terms of BEV. Well, at the time, we were impressed with the E2100 information regarding paclitaxel and bevacizumab as first-line therapy with metastatic disease. And I think that NAB-paclitaxel is at least equivalent, if not superior, plus the reasons that High suggested about administration, chair time, steroids, etc. So if I can get coverage for it from an insurance point of view, I try to use that agent. So how about Bev? I'll start with High. I'm curious to know what your current approach is to utilizing the drug in breast cancer, and what do you think about Bev in this particular patient? Well, I think it's still a reasonable option. I can't recall in my career seeing a similar circumstances of a drug approved when the same data were available, the survival data were available, and the progression-free survival data were available at approval being disapproved, you know, just because whatever it is, a change in philosophy, et cetera. So, you know, my thought is that for first-line therapy in metastatic breast cancer, at least from the E2100 data, which was a very clean study, to almost double a patient's progression-free survival is a very laudable goal. Now, if it was from one month to two months, I don't think it'd be worth the investment. But going from you know, 5 to 11 months, 6 to 11 months, I think the BEV is very impressive. And I kind of think in my mind that what if we all knew we were going to live to 80, but we were in pain? Would we not take analgesics for pain, even though our survival was going to be the same? So I think 
extending PFS for several months can really improve quality of life in a patient, even if they don't live any longer. And perhaps it's something we'll talk about later, but I think looking at quality of life and goals of care for cancer patients should be taken into account in approval decisions of drugs. That said, I think it's reasonable to use BEV as first-line therapy in this setting, and for many patients, it's going to improve their progression-free survival. Do I do it? Always no, but I still use BEV in selected patients. So what about the pragmatics, Alan, of actually being able to treat somebody with BEV? Has that changed at all as all these debates and things are going on with the FDA? Actually, none of my Bevacizumab patients who were already on the drug have been denied. So everybody is still able to get it. However, we have not really challenged insurance companies for new patients in a large number of patients. So I can't tell you how that's going to play out with starting a patient, but we've had no problems with continuing patients who are already on the drug. So, hi, what about the specific issue of utilization of BEV right now? You mentioned you use it in selective situations. Any comment on any of the data that's come out recently, and particularly the Ribbon 2 study that was presented at ASCO by Adam Brofsky looking at BEV in the second-line situation? Yeah, I think as we get into the second line in other situations, the added value is much less impressive than at least the E2100 in the first line. So I feel in the second-line setting, I don't consider using it in those patients. I think getting back to what you asked, Alan, I think the decision's going to be made for us. I don't think insurers and other people are going to pay for it. And I don't think I would press patients to try to pay for this out of pocket at all. So I think the decision will be made. But in the second line therapy, the ribbon studies, they're less impressive, certainly, than the E2100. Anything else either of you want to comment on this patient, either the medical course or anything about her as a person? The only mention that I would make is that the reason that the bevacizumab was continued with the capecitabine is mainly because she was on it when I had to interrupt the nabpaclitaxel. I didn't consider this a progression on bevacizumab, but I would agree that I do not use bevacizumab in breast cancer for second-line use. Hi, any pearls about capecitabine in the metastatic setting? You've been kind of a champion of that for a long time. Anything you want to say in terms of monitoring patients? Any You mentioned before the other patient who had, had some hand-foot syndrome. How's this patient doing? Well, this patient was the one uh, Alan was kind enough to send me some photographs of the hand-foot syndrome, which was really grade three, and there is no grade four toxicity. So she had a lot of hand-foot syndrome. And one of the pearls that I think about, I think capecitabine is an excellent drug in many ways because it's When you have metastatic breast cancer, you're not a curable patient. And you can introduce the patient to, quote, oral chemotherapy without hair loss, usually without myelosuppression. And I think it's a good way to start that journey into the treatment of people with metastatic breast cancer, which can be, especially if they're truly endocrine refractory, it's not going to be many, many years. I think we've never really learned the optimal dose of capecitabine. We know in the package insert dose that they've been inappropriate because too many patients get hand-foot syndrome. So we've kind of ended up with a 2,000 milligram per meter square dose, which 
has never really been tested in a randomized fashion, and I suspect that that may even be too high for many patients. And we discussed the fact that I've treated patients. I've One story I had, I had an older woman in her 80s, and I was telling Alan, I had seen her for many years. She had slowly progressive pulmonary meds, and I actually followed her with no therapy for about two years. And then she started to get meds big enough to have a cough, starting to lose a little weight. And she looked me in the eye one day in the clinic, and she said, if you give me any medicine that makes me sick, I'll never see you again. So I started her on capecitabine, 500 milligrams BID, you know, thinking I was mainly treating myself. And lo and behold, she came back and it was good objective data. You could see all of this on a chest X-ray. And she actually had good shrinkage and tumor control for eight months. So my view might be for selected patients, if you start them in a high dose if they have any hand-foot syndrome, they drop down and work your way up. Or I start a lot of patients like on, let's say, 1,500 milligrams BID, an average size patient, and work them up. Because the hand-foot syndrome can be very, very problematic. And I've tended to use the Memorial Sloan Kettering schedule of seven days on, seven days off. My bias And I've heard that people are suggesting a randomized trial versus the two weeks out of three, which I guess we learned is better than continuous capecitabine now in a recent trial. My bias is you probably get a better cumulative dose and less toxicity with the seven-day on, seven-day off schedule, even though I can't prove that. 